And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will put a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction." You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is the word of the Lord. pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are the king. Father God, that you have the right to judge, to speak. Father God, that your ways are perfect. Father God, that man has no right, no privilege to stand in judgment upon the decrees that you would make. And Father God, I pray that your kingdom would come, that you would work in our hearts and our lives, God, that we would let you be God. That we would let you be who you are, Father God, that we would let you stand in judgment upon us rather than us striving to stand in judgment upon you. Father God, as we come to this text and we continue this series through Malachi, Lord God, Father, I just pray that you'd help us to lay down our rights. I pray that you would work in our hearts, Father God, that we would be laid bare before you. Father God, that you would help us to see your power, your mercy, your judgment, your faithfulness, your love, all mingled together perfectly in this and the remaining text. God, may your kingdom come. May you be glorified in us. May you be building and growing our faith, Father God. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, right now as you look upon us, God, in this room we are collectively, I'm sure, making decisions, Lord, about what job to work, about where to go to school, Father, about, God, whether or not we're going to continue to cling and fight for the marriage that we are in. Lord God, I pray that your will would be done. Father, not our own, not our friend's will, Lord God, but your will. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord God. There are some this, this morning, God, who came in here worried about how they're going to pay their rent this month, God, and I pray that you provide. God, I lift up those who are sick and those who are suffering, God, with cancer, Lord, with taking radiation treatments. God, I pray that you bring healing and health and strength, God, and the, the consistent reminder of your presence as the good shepherd. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, God. May we, God, I pray you'd speak to us even this morning. 
God, whether it is a sin that we have committed on the car ride here, Lord God, or if it's something that we have long been trying to ignore, Father, bring us peace with you. Forgive us, heal us, and God, may we be a people who, because we have been forgiven much, can forgive much. Lead us not into temptation. Lord God, I pray that you would keep us from spiritual pride, that you would keep us as a body from arrogance. Lord God, you'd keep us from falling into um, gossip and slander and selfishness, Lord, and deliver us from the evil one. Lord God, I pray that no weapon formed against us would prosper. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would deliver your people, God. I think right now of your people, Father, in Syria. And I pray, God, that they would be reminded of your presence right now. I got to think of your people in Iraq, and I pray, God, that even in the midst of such suffering, God, and oppression, that your gospel would come to bear and that you would bring life and hope and peace right now, Lord, where there is slavery and oppression and fear. And may your name be glorified. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, I feel like we're hitting the part in Malachi where we go from 35 to 105 really fast. And so I just want to start with a question. Do you have a mirror in your house? Okay, now I'm going to ask the more indicting question. How many mirrors do you have in your house? We're not, I don't know how much of a hand-raising church we are, but raise your hand if you have a mirror in your house. And there are a few of you that don't have your hands raised and you're lying in church. Come on. (laughs) Really? How many of you have two mirrors in your house? Some of the liars have stopped lying. Good. (laughs) You know, we could keep going on. I bet you there are a number of us in this room that we have a mirror in every room of our house. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. And there are some of us that probably have multiple mirrors. Uh, (laughs) Multiple mirrors in each room in our house. And I got to tell you, now, in, in our culture, there admittedly are some of us that need to obsess a lot less in front of the mirror, but we're not going to name names. But that needs to happen for some of us, because we are in a culture that drives us to the point of anxiety. And yet, I thank God for mirrors. Because if you're anything like me, you know, there are those times in which I have a nice bowl of meatballs, and I'm there. And I have this perception that my nice white shirt is still nice and white. And I'm getting ready to leave the house. And then I think, you know, maybe I should look in the mirror and see if my self-perception matches reality. Are you following me? And I go and I look there in that mirror that does me not as good justice as this one maybe. And I see this big honking red spot right on my collar and I think... And I, I thought I was so clean. And I, go, and I go and I change. And I realize, okay. Or if you're like me, who has been known to do house projects while wearing nice clothes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not alone again. And you go and you do that house project and you think, I'm fine. <laughs> okay, let's go out, you know, to, visit, to have dinner with this other family. And you just happen to glance in front of them and you think, oh no. There's grease on my pocket and on my shirt and everywhere I am. I thought I had looked so good. I'm I'm a mess right now. And in many ways, I think that this text 
God is speaking through Malachi to show a mirror to the people of Israel. Because they don't think they're that barren tree up there. Guarantee you they do not. They think, and I wish I would have had the foresight to get a picture of a beautiful kind of fragrant tree. Because I think they think that they are flowering and fruitful. Because here they are, as we're going to see, angry at God that he is not blessing them according to his covenant. And yet, the reason he is not blessing them is because there is a big discrepancy between who they are and who they think they are. And so he is holding up this mirror for them, if you will, before they walk out of the house so that they will realize how bad off they are and that they will repent. Last two weeks we've seen how the priests have put God on trial and God is really holding up a mirror and saying, who do you think you are? Verse 1, and now, O priests, the command is for you if you will not Listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. You know, again, sometimes we tend to read the prophetic literature and the only thing we hear is judgment, right? And that's why some of us stay away from the prophetic literature because we have a little too much judgment in our lives already. And yet, what I want you to hear is, again, is that the root of the prophetic literature is not a call to judge. The root begins with a call to repent, a call to restore fellowship, a call to restore relationship. And the judgment is held out, indeed, quite powerfully because the people have turned their backs, as we're going to see. He's holding up a mirror so that they will see who they've become. I love how it says that. If you will not listen. It's a matter of the will. He's saying, right now you're not listening. And if you continue to not listen, this is where you're going to go. But he's leaving out the hope and you can hear the burden of God to say, I want you to just listen. I want you to listen. I want you to take the cotton balls out of your ears. I want you to change your heart. I want you to turn and repent. Four, four stages or four things we'll see in the text this morning. One, we see what the priests have become. Two, we see how God responds. Three, we see what they were called to be. And finally, we'll look at what this means for us. What the priests have become. You've probably heard the phrase, the apple has fallen far from the tree. And that can be a praise or a curse depending on who the apple is and what the tree is, right? But, but, but what is clear is it's always saying you are not like your, either your parents or your previous, you know, the previous person that had your job or your forebear. You look very different than they looked. Couldn't be more true than the case of the Levites here in Malachi's day. The apple has fallen very far from the tree. See, in chapter 2, both this week and next week, we hear a lot of talk about covenant. And to, you know, to briefly say, a covenant was a relationship in the ancient world that brought together two people, whether it was two individuals or two nations. 
And so people would covenant together. They would make a list of promises and commitments to one another on, on how that relationship would go and how that relationship would be governed. And ancient covenants often had promises. This is what we promise to you. And if we break our promise, this is the punishment we will endure. You know, again, you, you see examples of this in God's covenant with Abraham, I think, in Genesis 18. And so, so, for instance, say it was two nations. You might have two nations. And the stronger nation might say, we covenant to protect you from your enemies and to never invade you if you pay us a yearly tribute. And... And if, in fact, the smaller nation stopped paying the larger nation that tribute, then the larger nation was free to invade. They hadn't lost any of their um, credentials, if you will. And, and so we have, we have a covenant was a relationship, or it would govern a relationship between two groups of people and had along with it blessings and curses. If you want to look at, if this is new to you, I'd encourage you this afternoon, maybe read Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you see God's covenant with Israel. You see him listing the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. God has always called the people to himself out of sheer and abundant grace. And yet, once they are in that relationship, God offers blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. You see that in Deuteronomy. Our text this morning, though, is focused on the priests. And it's kind of hard because we don't see anywhere in the scriptures in narrative where God makes a covenant with Levi like the one being described. We don't see it. We see it referred to here and I think two other places in the Old Testament. But we never see, see it, you know, kind of worked out the way we do at Mount Sinai with the entirety of the nation. But here we see God saying, hey, I've got this covenant that you have broken. Verse 8, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your own instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people. Inasmuch as you do not keep your ways, my ways, and show partiality in your instruction. Two, two things we see here. Two ways in which the people have broken the covenant. They've broken the covenant by their life and by their doctrine. They've broken the covenant by their life and their doctrine. They've turned aside from the way. Quite literally, they have turned their back on God. They've turned their back on God. I mean, some of you understand what that means. When you are, you're in a conversation with someone, maybe you're in a relationship with someone, and you get so frustrated about what you're hearing that you hit the place and say, I'm not even going to listen to them anymore. Have you ever in the middle of a conversation actually done that? You've turned their back without so much as a goodbye, and you've even maybe walked away because you just said, I'm done. I'm done. I don't even want to be in your presence and hear what you say. That is what he says the people of Israel, the, the Levites rather, have done to the living God. They've turned aside from the way. They've turned their back on God. They've said, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to hear what you're saying. I don't want to look in your face anymore. I, I, I don't want to walk towards you. I want to walk away from you. He has given them clear instructions on who he is and how he is to be worshipped. 
And as we saw last week, they have rejected those instructions again and again and again. They've turned their backs on the one who knit them together in their mother's wombs and who numbered all of their days before one of them came to be. Secondly, they've shown partiality in their instruction. They've been intentionally selective in what they've taught the people or or even perhaps different groups of people. Instead of approaching God's word and saying, okay, he has given us this revelation of himself. I am accountable to teach what we call the whole counsel of God. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and everything in, they have shown partiality. And so they've said, I'm going to teach this, but I'm not going to teach that. Probably... Because they believed this and didn't believe that. Or because, even worse, they wanted to believe this and did not want to believe that. They have become intentionally selective. And I hope this starts to cause you a little anxiety. Because this is a very easy sin to fall into. We approach the word of God like a buffet. We approach it like a buffet and we say, man, I like this promise. I'm going to cling to that one and I'm going to highlight that. That one's good. I like that. And wow, I like this teaching. This is really good. I'm going to teach that one in my Bible study hour. That's really good. And I like this blessing, and, I, and, and I'm going to accept things that don't challenge me a whole lot. And I'm going to believe the things that my unsaved family would agree with. And I'm going to teach the things that never challenge me or anyone else to grow. The calls to holiness that, at least that one for you, is rather easy. And yet then we leave the parts of God's word that are challenging, demanding, and that remind us that he is God and we are not. That is an easy place to fall into. The priests have failed to watch their life and their doctrine closely, and the result, we are told, is that they have caused many to stumble. You ever, you ever, you ever get tempted to do something and you think, you know, well, it's not hurting anyone. It's not affecting anyone. It's not causing anyone else a problem. Here God is in Malachi holding up a big mirror to the Levites who may or may not have thought that. We don't know. But he's holding up a mirror and saying, don't think your sin stops with you. Don't think your rebellion is not affecting anyone else because it is causing many to stumble. It's dangerous. The, per, the, the personal morality and example of these people that God called to lead the nation in worship instead of leading the nation towards God is causing the people to trip and stumble and fall into confusion themselves. They're going through the motions, indicting God and complaining, as we saw last week, about what he demands. And he's holding them up, this mirror in front of them, and saying, Look what you have become. You are standing in judgment over me as if you have it so together and your hearts are so far from me. And even as we read this text this morning, 
I hope that you are feeling that mirror held up to you. Not because God wants to drive you down into the dirt, but because if you are in the place where you are that tree, he says, I have a vision of a tree that is fruitful and beautiful with life, and that's what I want for you. But the first step to having that fruitfulness is acknowledging what you really look like, whether or not it matches with your perception of where your heart is. Two, we see how God has responded. Then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on their faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it so that you shall know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. This is probably one of the more vivid and shocking descriptions, I think, in the scriptures. And if you are not shocked by it, that is a problem. Because I think God is intentionally trying to shock and scare us with a revolting picture of him spreading on faces because he's trying to send a message. And he's trying to communicate what is really going on. In fact, if you're not bothered by it, you're in danger of slipping down the same slope. God is reminding these priests that he is not someone to be trifled with. That he is not someone that, you know, they shouldn't worry about how they can walk into his presence. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has made the way that we can, with, with confidence, walk into God's presence. But may we not forget whose presence we're walking into. We, we do not walk in with confidence because God is a great teddy bear in the sky and he is safe. Absolutely not. We walk, well, that's what makes the gospel so powerful, that we walk confidently, freely in the presence of a powerful, even awful being. And that we can have confidence, not because his power is diminished, but because we've been covered over through the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. The dung or the ophal, the, the undigested portions of the animals that were being sacrificed, according to the Levitical code, they would be taken outside of the camp and burned because they were not worthy of being part of worship. And so you begin to see the statement that God is trying to make. He's looking at these Levites and he's saying, your worship has become so worthless that I want to take this dung, I want to spread it on your face, and I want you to go outside of the camp with it because you are not worthy of worshiping me just like they are not worthy of worshiping me or the, the awful is not worthy of worship. He is not someone to be trifled with. We have created this illusion of a safe God who is not threatening who is not scary. And I think a lot of the apathy in, our, in modern worship services in certain churches is proof. We do not look at him as someone that should be worshipped with reverence or awe, but as someone who is safe. And we get angry when we are challenged or threatened by the prophetic literature because somehow we forgot, have forgotten 
that there is a God and we are not him. I, I really like how the writer Annie Dillard puts it. She writes, quote, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions of God's presence. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The church is our children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a box of TNT to kill on a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may someday awake and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. See her point there? She should say, let us not forget that we worship a God who is a consuming fire. The kind of God who has a right to say, just get out of the camp. Who, whose presence do you think you are walking into? Who do you think you are? Proof positive for me today is a lot of Christian music I hear on the radio. I am wearied with the number of songs I hear on Christian radio that make it out like Jesus is some great boyfriend and that we can be consumed with his intoxicating love. I think we've lost a sense of the reverence and the awe and the power that God has. As if, as if he has come down to our level rather than through the cross, him drawing us up that we can look at him face to face. You know, there's this great story of Martin Luther when he it was, this was, this is probably before, admittedly, he got saved. And here he is, he's still a Catholic priest, and he is going, and he is going to give communion. He's, he's celebrating the Mass. And you know, in the Catholic tradition, you know, they, they teach this, this becomes the, the body and the blood of Christ. And so here Luther is, he's standing there, the first Mass he's ever done, which is, you know, a significant moment for him as a priest. And he, he genuinely believes then, here he is now, he's, he's completed the rite. He knows he is standing in the presence of God. And his hands start to shake. And he starts to freak out. Because he's, I'm standing in the presence of this great God who has the right to say, I'm going to spread dung on your face when your worship is heartless and worthless. And so he's shaking because he knows wretched sinner than I am. Woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And I think we've lost that reverential fear. When you look at yourself in this mirror, you say, I come before a God who is powerful. And there is a sense in which I tremble at the thought of his majesty. Do you do that? Or do you not even think about it? Because it's only when we feel the tremor of this Lord of hosts, this mighty king whose name will be great from the rising of the sun to its setting, that we can feel the fullness of praise to say, Amazing grace, you've saved me. You've set me free. You are the good shepherd. The gospel is not the same, is not so good when we buy into the lie 
that God is down here with us. The good news is magnified when we realize that he is a great king. He is a great king. Matthew Henry once said, quote, Nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to honor it. That's why God is so upset. These were the people, these priests were the ones who were supposed to lead in declaring his goodness and his power. And so then when they profane the name of the Lord, he is indignant and rightfully so. And here's the crazy thing. Even as we are hopefully shocked by this vivid image of the same God who, what, formed Adam from the dust. Again, he got down and he formed Adam. The same God now spreading dung on the faces of these Levites and their children. The interesting thing is that this punishment is actually a sign of God's love and justice and faithfulness. And that may be a surprise. You know, we love to sing of God's faithfulness. And rightly so, because it is a sure foundation for us moment by moment. But if God were only faithful to some of his promises and not all, he would not be that sure foundation, would he? And so you see him say in this text, I am going to do this to you so that my covenant with Levi will stand. I am not bringing punishment and judgment because I am a sadomasochist. I am bringing it because I am faithful. I am bringing it because I am trustworthy and true. I am going to do this thing that is shocking to you because I promised that's what I would do if you rebelled against me. So it's a sign of God's love. It's a sign of the fact that we can actually trust God. You know, it's like in your parenting. If in your parenting you consistently give threats to your children that you, for disobedience and you consistently do not follow through with those threats, you are not teaching what you want to be teaching. And that's actually also why, and this is one where I indict myself, you have to be really careful as a parent to not threaten the punishment that you are not prepared to give. Because then the moment is going to come when you sit there and think, oh no, they went through that door number three. But I don't want to give them what's behind door number three. Then don't offer door number three. Be consist you want to be consistent. And in that consistency, you have the ability to mirror the faithfulness and the consistency of the living God that we worship. The priests of God have sinned grievously and God is vividly promising a curse upon them for it. I think that forces us to ask another question. Do you have a place in your theology for lament? We don't talk about lament a lot in America, I don't think. I mean, when was the last time you heard a sermon series on the book of Lamentations? There's a whole, there's, there's, I mean, you could really throw Jeremiah in there too and say we have two of the 66 books in the Bible are entirely lament, and yet we don't often like to talk about lament. When we talk about a church or a person who is grievously, and I use that word grievously intentionally, grievously rebelled against God, we often do one of two things. We think, well, that could never happen to us here at Grace. Or that could never happen to me. So we, we, we exalt ourselves unnecessarily. Or we become apathetic. We're like, well, that's a shame. 
Both of those responses fall far short of the mark. You know, I was reading, well, we were talking just yesterday in my house of, you know, in Ezra. You know, you see it in the book of Ezra. It's not the only place in the Old Testament you see it. Ezra comes home, and when he comes home, he comes to Israel, and he sees the Israelites have begun to sin grievously. They are not worshiping God as he is required. They have begun intermarrying. And what does Ezra do? He rips out his beard. He tears his clothes. He sits in sackcloth and ashes. And that is not an object lesson I'm going to do right now. But I'm struck by the thought of, look, that is a heart set on the glory of God. A heart that when you see God's name grievously slandered, says, I just want to rip out my clothes. I just want to humble myself physically and lament and stand in sorrow. Because I know God has so much better. And I know not only if these people were faithful would they flourish more, the glory of God would be proclaimed more. Is there anything right now that you should be lamenting over? Properly understood, lament is a glorious expression of worship where we are broken over the things that break the heart of God. It is really hard to rejoice over the things that please God if you are never broken over the things that tear God apart. In those Old Testament prophets rent, rent their clothes as surely as the heart of God was rent over persistent, high-handed sin on the part of his people who had been called by grace. Sometimes we need to look in the mirror and, say, and God says, hey, this is something worth lamenting over. Three, We see what God had originally called these people to be. See in verse 5. My covenant with them was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That is a beautiful picture. That's, I think, the fullest description we see of what the covenant of Levi, the Levitical priest, was supposed to be. And it's a beautiful picture. God wanted a people who stood in such awe of his name that they watched their life and doctrine closely and served the people faithfully. Let's look at that piece by piece. God wanted a people who stood in awe of his name. That's how the priests were called to live before God. The Bible's description of God's power and God's wisdom and God's faithfulness and God's justice and the perfection of God's plan were not supposed to simply be words that stayed in a book. They were supposed to spring into the hearts of the priests to affect how they viewed the world, how they spoke, how they lived their lives before him. Their awe of God, the greatness of God and the justice of God was meant to prevent them from falling into sin. Their awe of the power of God was caused to keep them boldly seeking God in prayer and begging that he who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine would do that very thing. 
The wonder, the plan of God would keep them trusting in him when nothing made sense. Their awe of God's creativity would keep them enjoying his creation in the spirit of praise and thanksgiving from everything from the sunsets to the spices. It is so easy for us. I've got a little Lego man right here. It is so easy for us to fall into this worship of God where we've got this Lego man who is now sitting because he won't stand. (laughs) This Lego man and our understanding of him is we are looking down on him. We know that he exists. We know that he's real. We are trying to actually stay perhaps close to him in something of a relationship, but we almost, our, our picture is so small, we've got him in such a box that we, are, we don't expect much, and we don't think he should expect much from us. Because we functionally walk around as if we are greater than he. That is what it means to make an idol before the living God. Part of it is we've just made him small. It's like we need a microscope to dial down and see his character and his actions. We stand in judgment over him. We declare the parts of his word that we like and those that we don't like. We say, well, I'm going to keep this, but I'm not going to keep that. Or we think, well, you know, that just, that's, we make excuses like, well, if we believe this, no one's going to come to Jesus. So let's, let's just throw that out. Or, you know, hey, if, if, if we believe, you know, our culture has moved past that, so let's just throw that out. As if we stand in judgment over him, when in fact it should be the inverse. To, to, to stand in awe of his name and to walk before him in fear would mean that we are looking at God from the perspective of this Lego man that's an inch tall. That we would just be looking up thinking, I can't even take this all in. It's one of the striking things for me. I love hiking. I love mountains. And, and yet when we went to Montana and you're hiking there in Yellowstone, it was just a different game. And I, I've, seen, I've stood atop of many a mountain and watched a sunset. And yet there is an epic level where you just sit there and it's almost exhausting because you can't take it all in. You can't even process it. You're standing there looking, maybe you've had this experience at the Grand Canyon, or there, the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, and you're sitting there just looking out, and you sit there for 45 minutes, and you think, I, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm speechless. You, know, you take pictures, and every picture you look at, as you think five years later, you think, didn't do it justice. Didn't do it justice. Didn't do it justice. Well, maybe God has given us these grand physical experiences this side of heaven so that we can begin to get the tiniest picture of what it looks like to look at him. That we would stand in awe of his name. And if you struggle to stand in awe of the name of God, as many of us do, let me suggest that the first step is you've got to go and you've got to look at him and consider him. In the same way that it is hard to stand in awe of the Grand Canyon if you've never looked at the Grand Canyon and you've never seen a picture of the Grand Canyon, it is really hard to stand in awe in the name of God when you do not sit and pour over his word, when you don't meditate on his providence at work in your life and in the world around us. You know, David said, Lord, you are too wonderful for me. You are too wonderful for me. Your works are too wonderful. That's the heart response of someone who stands in awe 
of the name of the Lord of hosts. All you think is, God, you're just too wonderful for me. Your ways are above my ways. Your paths are beyond beyond tracing out. Your works are too wonderful for me. I can't even internalize them, much less fully comprehend them. And we praise him for that. God wanted a people who stood in such awe of his name that they watched their life and doctrine closely. Verse 6 tells us that the Levites were called to walk in peace and uprightness and to teach true instruction. There again, you see this image. It was, not, it was about what they taught and it was also about how they lived. It was both. Our awareness of God's glory keeps us from changing his word to make ourselves or someone else more comfortable. We'd rather be faithful to him and reviled by the world than be accepted by the world and judged by him as having been partial in our instruction. We walk in peace and uprightness. Again, I love that picture. Uh, On the one hand, again, you see the contrast. He says, well, they turned aside from the way. They turned their back on me, but they were supposed to walk in peace and uprightness. You know, in some circles today in America, we make it out like, Obeying Jesus and being faithful is a matter of rule following. And here Jesus, you know, God is comparing obeying him as walking in peace and uprightness. It's not a matter of checking boxes. It's a matter of faithfully living life before him that that, that shows forth the beauty and the glory of his design. He wanted a people who stood in such awe of his name that they watched their life and doctrine closely and they served the people faithfully. It says they, turned many, they were meant to turn many people from iniquity. They were meant to turn many people from iniquity. People, people were made, they, their position was such that people would seek them out for instruction. And I really love those, the combination of those two things because I think, well, in our culture today, those are, those are two things we often look and say, hey, the person that does that is arrogant and judgmental. The person who works to turn others from iniquity and who other people might seek out or should seek out for instruction, that person is being arrogant or judgmental, we will say in certain circles. And yet that is the very work God called the Levites to do. So, and of course, it remains to be said that you can try to turn someone from iniquity or instruct them in a way that is arrogant and in a manner that is judgmental. Absolutely can be done. But let's make sure that we don't just throw the whole category out all together. If they turn people from iniquity, that must mean that in some sense they walked up to people who were beginning to turn their back on God themselves And they grabbed them by the shoulder and they said, stop pursuing this reckless divorce. Stop living in this sexual sin. Stop. Stop picking and choosing which verses you are going to memorize and which ones you're going to act like they don't exist. Stop. Stop, come out of this gossiping, complaining, negative spirit and turn back towards Jesus. Speaking the truth in love is a glorious enterprise. 
when both go together. God gave them a covenant of life and peace. I feel like I have only begun to internalize the wonder inherent in that thought. That the great God of the universe came to give a sinful people a covenant of life and peace. Even in the midst of this judgmental horatory passage, we are reminded that God has a burden to bless his people. It's it's wrapped up in the heart of God. This is the God who was there when the morning stars sang together and who shut the door of the seas, who commands the morning, who would create a covenant with this people, saved solely by grace, apart from anything that they had done in order to bless them and display his glory through them. It's an amazing thought. Look in the mirror and say, God, am I believing that thought? Am I walking with the fullness of that that concept that you, this God who spoke the universe into existence, who tamed Leviathan, that you have a burden to bless your people who you've saved wholly by grace? What does this mean for us? We've said a lot already, but what more let me say? What more might we say that this means for us? Well, I think for one, this this charge, we see in this inherent a charge to any elder, any former elder, anyone aspiring to one day be an elder. Looking at what God called these priests to be and what they fell into cannot help but remind us of God's charge to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. You see the same overarching themes. Watch your life, watch your doctrine, because it's not just going to affect you, and it's not just going to affect your biological family, it's going to affect my people, the bride of Christ. And if we know anything about God from Scripture, we know he is the good shepherd who cares a lot about his people. And so when he raises up under shepherds, whether they are the, the Levites or whether they are the elders in his church, he cares very much about their lives because he loves them and he loves the people they came to minister to. It is a good thing to periodically step back and measure your life and your doctrine. It is a good thing actually to step back and to invite someone else to speak in your life and say, what would you say about my marriage? Ask me any question you want. What what do you think about my teaching? Am am I keeping to the straight and narrow or am I straying to the right or to the left? What would you say? Pastor Brian and I, we have this great agreement already where we've we've given each other permission and said, you ask me anything you ever want to ask, no matter how touchy the subject is, and you feel free to speak into my life because I am a sinner saved by grace alone, and of myself, I am liable to become a mess. It's a good thing to, to, to help and to work with others to watch your life and doctrine closely. It affects the church of God. And if you don't believe that, you see that lived out every time you see a prominent pastor fall into sin. Two, the text is a charge to anyone who would call themselves a Christian 
because we are all part of the priesthood of all believers. Why don't you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we, we see this, I think, lived out rather well. First Peter 2, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you are a Christian, you are a priest. You are a minister of the new covenant. You are called to worship and make sacrifices before the living God. It is a calling that is not reserved for a select few. That is one of the biggest the, the, the discontinuities I think we see between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, it was the Levites and the Levites alone that were called to come before the Lord and offer these worship and these kind of sacrifices. And in the new covenant, every believer has been made a priest. Every believer, Romans 12, is called to make, to make their lives a living sacrifice before the Lord, that we would live our lives before him in praise. And so we're called to to, to step back and say, well, we have this great opportunity. I mean, the original audience, I think, would have been stirred, those words, because the the, the Jewish Christians would have been stirred because you would have had Jewish Christians from the tribe of, of Judah or from of Benjamin. Or if Simeon would say, you mean we get to be a priest now? For thousands of years, our ancestors were not priests. It was just the Levites. We get to be a priest? And and the Gentile Christians, even more so, would have said, you mean we get to, to worship and make offerings before the Lord? We get to serve him and glorify him and praise him? We've almost become inoculated because we're so used to it. And yet this is, this is a wondrous thought that our lives are an act of worship before the king. And they force us to look in the mirror and say, what is the quality of that sacrifice? Is it from my, my first or is it my last? Is, it this, is my life a living sacrifice before the Lord right now such that it would come up before him as a fragrant offering? Or is the kind that he would say, this has just got to go out of the camp unless you repent and change. And that's what I want. But I'm not going to wait forever. Finally, the failure of the priests to represent God well and point, him, point to him faithfully reminds us of the one who never failed. The perfect priest. I love how Jeremiah puts it. He says in Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Skipping down, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, 
And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is my righteousness. Jesus is the perfect priest who always offered a pure offering before the Lord. He is the one who always kept the covenant. The one who always reflected the light of God's glory. The one who never caused anyone else to stumble through his sin or through his false teaching. He he is the one who lived the life that we cannot live and died the death that we deserve to die so that through him he could create a worldwide family of God from among people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, taking people that were once rebels against the king and transforming them into sons and daughters and priests, a holy nation brought together not by flesh or by blood, but by the power of his Holy Spirit and his gospel at work within us. He is the righteous branch through whom we who were born into sin can now enjoy peace and life forevermore. Whether today is the first day or the one thousandth day, let today be the day where when he holds up to the mirror to us, We do not cringe, but we say, thank you, Lord, for showing me who I am. I am undone before you. Change me, transform me, forgive me. Psalm 51 is one of the most beautiful psalms in the world because it is the psalm where David expresses that transformation. And and God has not changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a gracious king. And Father God, there are some of us right now, God, that we are especially in need of grace this morning. And I pray that you would apply it by the power of your spirit. God, there are some of us this morning, God, that we need to be brought to our knees. And I pray you would apply it that we may then be brought up through your grace. God, I pray that you would implant in our hearts and minds a fear of the Lord that we might walk before you in reverence and awe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and be dismissed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you in favor and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.